Welcome to the Refuge Weekly Podcast. We are a church in and for the city of Orange in Southern California. The heart of Refuge OC is to introduce and reintroduce people to a clearer vision of God. To learn more about us and how you can get involved, please visit us at refugeoc.com. And now, here is our latest message. All right, it's a history lesson today. I want you to be ready for this because I'm going to go to class in about eight days. And I had to read a book last week, and you are going to get this book. I'm just going to give it to you today. You're welcome. Okay, turn in your Bibles if you have one, whether it's on your phone, you got some one with pages, you're going to go to Acts chapter 16. And if your phone distracts you and takes you away from this place, I want you to do your best to perhaps put it away. But if you want to Google check and fact check me, you're more than welcome to. We're going to head right to the Roman Empire. You have got your passports in hand. We're going to book a trip right now to the city of Philippi. That is where we're heading right now. Philippi is a Greek city. It is in the region of Macedonia. And those of you who need a map, I've got one. Here you go. Here's a map to look at. It tells you where things are at. You can see where Rome's at to kind of geolocate yourself in the world. You see the boot of Italy and all that kind of fun. But if you head over into the Greek area of the map, you'll see where things are happening. But Philippi is this little known city that gets mentioned in the New Testament, and it's the story of our day. So Acts chapter 16 is where we pick things up, beginning in verse 9. There's a lot of slides and a lot of words, and I promise you, it's a story. So go with me. During the night, Every good story begins with that. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. I don't know what happens in your dreams if people yell at you or not, but that's how I took it. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight For Samothrace. And the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Dun, dun, dun. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept us up for many days. Finally, (laughs) I love this, Paul became so annoyed (laughs) (laughs) that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. 
and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Very highfalutin language. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. What a day. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. Not just Paul and Silas, everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And the jailer called for the lights. Called for lights, excuse me. No one flipped a switch back then. Rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. And the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Uh, now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison, and now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, you know, the dealer in purple, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And then they left. Ah. Oh. It's like you have to be there. All right, let's go there. So, so this place called Philippi, this city in Greece, is really important. And I know what you're thinking. Why is it important? Is it just because it's in the Bible? Heck no. I want you to go back even further in time. There's this little thing called the Ides of March. You perhaps have heard this phrase. You can Google it right now if you would like. Some would say, beware of the Ides of March, which happens right around March 15th. It's this seasonal thing that happened, but one of the most important things that ever happened on the Ides of March back in 44 BC is Julius Caesar was murdered. We're going back 80-ish years from when this is happening. So back in time, 80 years, Julius Caesar is murdered. I think there's some artwork that I want to show you that people have 
have painted before. Here's the first one to look at. This is the assassination of Julius Caesar. This one is done in 1806, and you can kind of see the visual of all the senators in that Roman Republic who have turned their back on Julius Caesar, who was leading at the time. Do you remember the two people who did it? Brutus and Cassius. We know them because of the famous play done by Shakespeare, right? This is what it is. If you've listened to that play, if you had to read that play in high school, if you know anything about it, there's that famous Latin phrase that Julius Caesar is said to have uttered in his moment of dying and his breath comes out, a tu Brute, saying, you too, Brutus, you too, not just Cassius, also you, you're the one who's killing me. There's another painting I want to show you. I kind of look a little bit of a closer look because you see where Julius Caesar is in the red and there's a guy with a knife that's coming at him and all of the senators around him, it's almost as if they ganged up in this moment to defeat Julius Caesar. 44 BC, Ides of March, March 15th. Why in the world do I tell you this story? Just for fun facts, to show you that I did my history? Of course. But more than that, um, after this, the entire Roman Empire is thrown into a flurry. Because before that, it was known as the Roman Republic, right? It was led by dictators. It was led by rulers like Julius Caesar. We have other famous generals. Eventually, if you go back in time, you can hear their names. But if we start right now, 44 BC, March 15th, when Julius Caesar is assassinated, there are those who are happy and there are those who are unhappy. The one person who is most unhappy that Julius Caesar has been assassinated is his nephew, a guy named Octavian. I don't know why you would ever name your kid that, but they did. Octavian becomes Julius Caesar's heir apparent, and he is on a mission to avenge his uncle's death. And Octavian teams up with a guy named Mark Antony. Mark Antony had a tryst at one time with a lady named Cleopatra. It eventually was his downfall. But together, Octavian and Antony, for about 11 years, go on a mission to get all the people who had killed Julius Caesar. The most important battle, two years later, 42 BC, it's in the city of Philippi. Philippi. This city that had been named for Philip of Macedon back in the 300s BC is now the central location for the penultimate battle between those who killed Julius Caesar and those who are trying to avenge his death. And in this battle, Mark Antony and Octavian kill and get the forces of Brutus and Cassius. And it's over. Obviously, they still got other people they want to go after. And you know what eventually happens as you know your Roman history. We understand that the Roman Empire grows to great renown. And Octavian, you probably have heard his name before. It gets changed to Augustus. So when you hear things in the Bible around the time of Jesus when he is born in Bethlehem, and we hear that there was a census that had been ordered by the Caesar of the day, his name was Augustus Caesar. This is the same guy who's connected to Julius Caesar trying to avenge his death in 42 BC at the Battle of Philippi. And he reigns for 40-something years, all the way until we get to Jesus. But here's the deal. After the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC, these guys, namely Antony and Octavian, soon to be Augustus, they want to, what would you say, be kind to those who helped them. So there are Roman generals who fought alongside Mark Antony and Octavian. And they didn't want to go all the way back to Rome. Like, put, put the map back up if you have that readily available. 
The map is, if I'm over in Philippi, do I really want to get all the way back to Rome and live it out there? Because as the Roman Empire was expanding, Roman generals figured out that the further away from Rome I am, I can actually go higher in the pecking order of importance and stature. Because the Roman Empire was what ruled the day. So these generals who had won the battle for Mark Antony and Octavian got to stay behind in Philippi, and that city was now turned from a Greek place to now a Roman place. And Roman rule ruled the day. And so these Roman generals who began to establish the hierarchy and the aristocracy of Philippi began to set in place what was known to everybody. Why do I tell you all this? Because Luke who is writing this story in Acts chapter 16, Luke records two details that I read, and I, I want to make sure that you don't miss this. I think there's, a, a, there's a, a, a slide with two verses real quick that we note. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. Now, Luke is a historian. He is telling the story of the early church that began after, in the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection. He tells lots of stories where Paul goes to. He tells the story when Paul goes to eight Roman colonies, but this is the only one that gets named as a Roman colony in Luke's writing. Why in the world is Luke wanting us to know that this is a Roman colony? And then you go down further and we hear what Paul says to the officers after they've beaten him. He goes, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. You can't do this to us because there is a hierarchy and a pecking order to things in the Roman Empire. Luke knows this as well as anybody, as does Paul and his companions. All right, you wanted more history. You're welcome. We're going there. Okay, now here's how the pecking order looked in the Roman Empire. And I think I have a slide here that shows there are the elites and the non-elites. And at, nah, right around this time, there is the estimate by scholars that would say there are the elites, the top three levels of hierarchy, which would be the senators, the equestrians, and the decurions. And population-wise, they would number about one million in the empire. Now you've got the lower half, which, you know, Many of you and me, if we read ourselves into the story, we always want to be in the upper half of life. But to be real honest, if it was my story, I would most likely be in the lower half. We would be amongst the freeborn. We would be amongst the freedmen, those who had perhaps been indentured servants of some kind or had become slaves for a certain amount of time, but to earn their freedom or bought it off. So they're known as freedmen. And then you just have regular slaves at the bottom, and they would number 49 million. So you can get a sense of where things stack in the empire. If you were in the upper class, you dressed accordingly. The only person who would go above this would be the emperor himself. Obviously, we get that. But the senators, the equestrians, and the curions, these are the ones who ruled everything. So if you go to a city, you could pick out, based upon the toga that was being worn and perhaps the sash that they wore, and some of the sashes were, oddly enough, the color of purple. Who Lydia, a dealer in purple robes and purple cloth, has a point in this story. All right, and I know what you're asking. Well, how much money do these people have? 
Okay, I've got this slide too. Let's go. You wondered. Then the senators, equestrians, and decurions, in order to make it to those levels, it was like old money. Like you were born into those families. Rarely would you earn the opportunity to move up into class change, if you will. But in order to be a senator, you had to have one million sesters. In order to be an equestrian, it was 400,000 sesters. And in order to be a decurion, the lowest of the upper class, you would have 200,000 sesters. Now, just for comparison, a foot soldier in the Roman Empire would earn 900 sesters a year. That's what you got paid. You got to be a part of the legion. You secured Rome's future, and you got paid 900 sesters a year. Now, what does a sester mean? And I'm putting it up there right there for you can see. It's one quarter of a denarius. And you're like, I don't even know what that means. All right, me neither. It's one sester would probably, some scholars last year, 2021, my facts on, you know, doing my searches, say that about a sester would equal 50 cents, which would mean that a denarius, because a sester is one quarter of a denarius, a denarius would be roughly $2. So if you're parsing things out, you had to have money in order to make it. But if you were to take the number of sesters that a Roman foot soldier would get, you knew that you would never have the opportunity of getting higher, higher in the hierarchy. Unless, of course, you fought in the legion army against the people like Brutus and Cassius, and you earned your stripes. Perhaps you became a company commander. Perhaps you became a commander of a brigade. And then eventually you would get higher and higher rank in the army. And then when you won the battle against Brutus and Cassius, Mark Antony and Octavian would say, well, you can stay here in Philippi and you can become part of the upper class. And that is how the story is shaped when we get to this passage in Acts. Why do I tell you all of this history? Because it matters more than just letting the pages of Scripture go by for us to just check it off our list like, I read it, now God, aren't you happy with me? No, 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 we've got to put ourselves into the story to fully understand what's happening. And if you go back to that map and you see where things are happening, you notice that the further away from Rome that you get, it's still expanding in an empire, but Philippi itself is one of those places where Roman rule was it. You either believed that the emperor was Lord or you didn't. And if you didn't, it didn't end up well for you. So when Paul and his companions come this first time through the city of Philippi and they proclaim this good news and they meet Lydia amongst the women outside the gate by the river and they share this good news and she becomes a Christian and she's like, I can't wait to have more of this because all the stories I've been told of the Roman Empire is that Caesar is Lord. And Paul has the audacity to show up and say, no, 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 it's not Caesar who is Lord. It's actually Jesus. And then they encounter that demon-possessed girl, right? The one who could foresee the future. And her owners were making money off of her because you knew they were just running tricks in the, in the market. They would just bring the girl and be like, ah, she can read your fortune. And as she did, people would pay money and the owners thought this was the greatest thing in life until the day she gets healed and they're ticked. They're like, what is happening? Our entire way of life is over and you wonder, man, is that how bad society got back then when we were only trying to make a buck? Even at the expense of someone who was so possessed by a demon that we would exploit them. But then Paul comes to town and casts out the demon and she's healed. And people begin to hear about this. 
and they're mad because it's upsetting the order of things. It's upsetting how the Roman Empire was set up. It's upsetting how the upper class always had it and the lower class never did. When you upset the apple cart of the system, people get super scared. That's exactly what's happening here in this passage. But what I love the most is that if we can fast forward the story 10 years after this happens in Acts 16, it's when Paul writes his letter to his friends in Philippi. It's the letter that we know today, later on in the New Testament, it's called the letter to the Philippians. And he's writing this letter and he says some pretty amazing things. And I wanna give you just a few words that he says. It's one of the slides that I have. He says in chapter three of Philippians, by the way, Paul never made them chapters. He just made it a letter. We added chapters later. But in chapter three, he goes, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. I can only imagine what Paul must have thought as he knew the city of Philippi really well. And he knew the people who lived there. And he knew that it was a Roman-controlled town. And he knew that he could even appeal to his Roman citizenship in that moment when he was thrown in prison. But now when he's writing this letter of the Philippians to his friends in Philippi, he's actually in prison elsewhere. Some would say perhaps Rome. And as he's in prison and he's handing it to his letter carrier and he's writing these words of saying, our citizenship is not in this empire. Our citizenship is not in this thing of the place where we live. Our citizenship is different than that. But I actually think the most important thing that he says in, in, the, in the letter to the Philippians is that very first phrase, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Paul can be accused of not having friends. He doesn't use friendship language. There's often an honor-shame culture existent in the Roman Empire. You either honored those that were above you in the hierarchy or you did false honor to make yourself look better so that you could get up the pecking order. Because the things back then that mattered sometimes are still the things that matter today. What kind of job do you have and how much money do you make? And we think that's it for you. But as Paul understands, when he understands how things really work in the kingdom, and yeah, he never uses friendship language, but he uses family language. And he's very strategic. And I want to give you something that I just want you to ponder. I just want you to like, I want this to stay with you beyond today, is this. The reason he uses family language is because he's upsetting the apple cart of the system. In the system of Rome, where you always figured out where you stood in the pecking order and how you wanted to advance, but most often you couldn't, the only people that you were not allowed to shame or perhaps heap shame upon is your family, which is why we go to blows for those against our family at times. It's filled with our, our literature. If you remember, this is why even Romeo and Juliet it's the Montagues versus the Capulets. It's why we, we retreat to our families because, no, 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 you can cross a lot of lines, but do not cross my family. So Paul, when he says, would you follow my example, brothers and sisters, were they his real brothers and sisters by blood? Heck no. 
And it's even the reason why I would say decades ago, if you found yourself in a church, you might even hear people, saintly people, say things like, hey, brother, hey, sister, or like, brother Brenton, you know, sister Rachel. I'm, I'm kind of glad that language is not used anymore, but I understand the reason why it was used in the Roman Empire for Paul is because when you became part of the family, you no longer compared yourself to the others on the pecking order. So if you could bring people into the family of God, they no longer were your competition. And which is why Paul even writes other letters and he says to people, when you invite people over for dinner, do not treat the person of high honor in society better than the person of low honor in society. Do not put the better seat for the senator or the equestrian or the decurion and the worst seat for the slave or the freedman or the freed person. That is not how it's to be within the family of God. So this language of family matters to Paul so deeply, and he says brothers and sisters because he's putting everybody at the same level, which is unlike Roman society. So why in the world do we need this history lesson today? Because I feel like the world wants to pull us into an order of things that say you only have status or you only have value, or you only have honor based upon what you do, how much you make, where you live, what you give your time to. And we have easily disregarded people in our society as worthless. And Paul, who upended the apple cart way back in the Roman Empire, and his words continue to do the same for us today, and the challenge for us Christians in 2022 is that would we be active participants in expanding the family of God? Would we welcome people in as our brothers and sisters and use language like, I am no longer going to push you away because that is not my calling. My calling in life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as a follower of the way of the cross, is one who wants to bring people closer and closer and closer to the king. Because if they can sit down at the table with me, we are equals. If I can sit with others, they are no longer my adversary. And in our world, I don't have to tell you this, we're really good at pitting sides. We are really good at figuring out who the enemy is. And Paul, in his wisdom, and perhaps in his challenge, is saying to us, would we expand the family of God? Would we, would we yet again bring people closer to Jesus and let them experience him? And I feel like if we can do that here at Refuge, if we join with Christians around the world who are doing that, that's when the kingdom gets made known. And that, I'm telling you, is better than any history story. It's just plain good news. So let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to step into the shoes of those who lived a couple of thousand years ago in a part of the world that some of us dream about visiting one day and some who have been there understand that, oh, what a life that would have been to be a part of the Roman Empire. But thank you for the faithfulness of your servant Paul and his friends, the ones who welcomed people into family so that our status was not as a result of where we stood in society or how much money we have, but oh God, our status is because you have made us. We resemble you. Our image is a reflection of you. 
Ever, ever since the first verses of Scripture, that is what we stand upon. Our, our, our sure footing in your kingdom is secure. And so, God, would you continue to challenge us as, as faithful followers and believers of you, of welcoming people in our lives all around, closer and closer to the King. Because as we are brothers and sisters together, we have hope for tomorrow and all the tomorrows that follow. And for those in this room who've had the kind of week where they wonder, are you still alive and active? Are you still doing anything? I pray that your spirit would rest upon their souls and their minds today to give them hope that they do not face this world alone. We face it as a community of believers who are dedicated to the King. May we carry one another's burdens, the things that so easily weigh us down. And Holy Father, would you guide us well into peace and freedom in your kingdom. And your kingdom sometimes seems too good to be true or perhaps so elusive that we can never get there. But God, may we see you at work this week, wherever you put us, whatever situation we find ourselves in, may we reflect your kingdom. We find brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters around us who will walk with us every single day. It's in your name we pray. Thank you for joining us this week. We believe in community and would love to connect with you. If you have any questions or would like to speak to a pastor, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at refugechurchoc. We hope to see you again soon.